0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, it's always wise to consult the author and ask his guidance Before we study, let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and it is in your word that you have declared the end from the beginning, that the fact that you have prophesied that which will come to pass and guarantee that it will come to pass precisely as you have revealed it, history written beforehand, is one of the great evidences of Scripture that this book is not an ordinary book, but that it is absolute truth, and that you are the God that the scriptures claim exists. Now, Fathers, we continue our study related to the end times prophecy and revelation. We pray that you would give us wisdom as we study these things, and that we can, through the Holy Spirit, see how they apply to each of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking at the first seal judgment in Revelation, which is the judgment related to the coming of the Antichrist and the kingdom of the Antichrist. The first seal judgment represents this kingdom is coming because one comes forth riding on a white horse and he goes forth conquering and to conquer. Now when you come to studying a doctrine such as we've been in for the last couple of lessons related to the Antichrist, sometimes people may go through a lot of this and say, okay, well this is really great, but why do I really need to know this? And first of all, we need to know this because if God has found it necessary to reveal so much about the future to us, then he thinks it's important for us to know it, and that pretty much settles the question. Unfortunately, we live in a world today where people are so driven by the immediate uh, self-absorbed psychological, emotional Needs of life as our culture is drilled into them that they often find the study of something like this to be, oh well, that's great, that's fine, that's off in the distance somewhere, but that really doesn't have any relevance to my own life. And as I'll point out as we go through this study, it actually does have a lot of relevance for our lives because the circumstances, the historical realities that give rise in history, in the future, to the coming of the Antichrist, are just as present today as they will be at that particular time. So we learn a lot of lessons about the trends of history. We learn a lot of lessons about people. We learn a lot of lessons about the wrong kind of leadership, human messianic leadership that uh, purports to solve man's problems apart from God and without relying upon his grace. There's a lot of really interesting things that we are going to be learning as we look forward into the tribulation period. What we see is that in that period, the same trends that we have in the church age are there, but to a much greater degree, much greater intensity. And one thing we will note then as we go through all of these judgments is the remarkable presence of God's mercy and grace as we see all these judgments. And often people get the idea that, that the period of the tribulation is just a time of the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of God poured out on history. And they overlook the fact that throughout these chapters from Revelation 6 all the way through Revelation 19, that there's also evidence of millions and millions of people who will come to saving knowledge of the cross, trust Christ as their Savior, and be saved during that time of unprecedented horror and suffering and tribulation. So that encourages us because even though we go through levels of tribulation, testing, and adversity that are uh, almost uh, of, of no concern in comparison to what they'll go through, The God of grace and mercy who sustains and saves in the tribulation period is the same God who sustains and saves during our lifetimes. And the provisions that enable believers to get through those horrors are the same provisions that enable us to get through the tough times that we encounter in our life. Now, as we've gotten into this study, We started in Revelation 6.1. Don't turn in your Bibles there because we won't be there for long. If you're just itching to get somewhere, go to Daniel 11. That'll get you ready. There, John says, the scene shifts. He's in heaven, and the scroll has been presented to the Lamb, And the lamb now begins to break the seals. And John records, I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with the voice of thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And as I pointed out in the past lessons, each of these horsemen, represent the judgment that is coming on the earth. And the judgment here is a judgment where God allows an individual to conquer and to establish a kingdom, a worldwide kingdom, a global kingdom, that will hold sway and tyrannize the human race during the tribulation period. So it's not that the individual on the horse is the Antichrist. But each of these horsemen represents this judgment that is coming. So as we have looked at this, we've raised the question, who is the Antichrist and what will he do? And we've looked at several points already. First of all, we saw that Jesus warned of false messiahs and false prophets. That idea of messiah is at the root of the word Christos. Christos is the Greek for the Hebrew word mashiach, which we pronounce Messiah. The anointed one, the true Messiah of Israel, is the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are going to be those who claim to be the Lord Jesus Christ, who claim to be the Messiah from God, who will take on and claim for themselves the ability to provide what God promised would be provided only by the Messiah. But there's two categories here. There's a category of false messiahs and the category of false prophets. This is seen in Matthew 24 twenty four for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. Notice this emphasis on on miracles. They will perform legitimate miracles, not just uh, sleight of hand, not just the fact that people will think they were healed, and all it was was a matter of uh, some sort of psychological uh, state or leg lengthening, or some of the other things that happen in all of these uh, so-called healing revivals and things like that. These will be genuine signs and wonders and miracles that are performed by the Antichrist. And this goes back to one of the tests related to to Revelation, the giving of Revelation, the test of prof, being a prophet back in Deuteronomy 13 where there's a clear recognition that there will be false prophets that come along and they will perform signs and wonders. And the text says even if they happen, you are not to follow them because the Lord has allowed this as a test to see if you will stick with his word or start running after these uh, charlatans. So we have to be careful that we can discern where the camouflage deceiver is. And the only way to do that is to know the truth and to be observant because there are many who will come making claims and even appearing to have documenting evidence of who they are. We saw the Antichrist as a term. It's only used one time. It's only used in 1 John chapter 2, 18, verse 18 and 22 and is a term that really emphasizes his role as a substitute Christ. He he is one who will try to do only what Christ can do, and this also implies, of course, that he will be against Christ. But the Greek preposition anti doesn't have the same idea as the English preposition anti, which means against. We saw as point number three that there's a series of titles that are given to uh, the Antichrist in scriptures. There's the little horn, which we've talked about in Daniel seven. The insolent king in Daniel 8:23, the prince who is to come in Daniel 9:26 and 27, the one who makes desolate Daniel 9:27, 11:31, Matthew 24:15, the man of lawlessness, Second 2 Thess 2:3, 2, the son of destruction in Second 2 Thess 2:3, 2, the lawless one, Second 2 Thess 2:8, 2, the beast, Revelation 11:7, the despicable person, Daniel 11:21, strong-willed king. Daniel 1136, worthless shepherd. And fourth, we saw that he rises to power during the transition between the rapture and the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, so don't bother trying to identify him now. He is not revealed until after, after the rapture. And at that time, according to Daniel 927, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's what starts that last seven-year period known as Daniel's 70th week, literally Daniel's 70th, seven. Uh, fifth, we've seen that he's going to be the head of a confederation of Western powers related to the revived Roman Empire during the tribulation years. Now, what we did at that point was to go through Daniel. Daniel is a tremendous source book for understanding prophecy, and some years ago, uh, back around 2000, I did a lengthy study going through Daniel, and some of you may be interested in going back and listening to that again as we go through Revelation. In fact, in many seminaries and Bible colleges, they frequently teach courses called Daniel and Revelation where they try to put, uh, put everything together. So what we saw as we went through this was we looked at three key sections so far that give us some uh, some information about the Antichrist. And the first has to do with this image in Daniel 2. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. That dream troubled him. Uh, he wouldn't tell any of his uh, astrologers or soothsayers or magicians what the dream was because he thought he would test them. They not only needed to give tell him what the dream was, but to interpret it. He figured if they could interpret it, they could tell him what it was. And so he threatened them with death. None of them could do answer any of that. Daniel, who was a prophet from God, Daniel, one of the Jewish captives, came forward, and he was able to tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream consisted of and to interpret it. And it was this statue, and each part of the statue was made up of a different element. Uh, the head of gold, the upper torso and arms of silver, uh, the waist area of brass, the uh, thighs of iron and then the lower leg was a mix of iron and clay. The gold represented the Babylonian kingdom. Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, o king, you are the head of gold. The silver represented the next empire that would come some years later. This dream probably occurred about 580 BC and the next king, the Media Persian kingdom, would not come on the scene for another 40 years, so this is genuine predictive prophecy. The next king kingdom was the Media persian kingdom, and the two arms represent the two different kings, the Medes and the Persians. The uh, waist area, lower abdomen of brass, this represented the kingdom of Greece, 331 B.C. to 146, and then the legs of iron represented the Roman Empire, which began in 146 B.C. Somebody asked me, why did I take it up to 1453? Didn't it fall uh, back in the 5th century? No, the Western Empire did at the uh, Battle of Adrianople, but the eastern part of the empire that became known as the Byzantine Empire continued until it collapsed from the invasion of the Ottoman Turks who took Istanbul Constantinople on May the 30th, 1453. The lower part of the statue is made up of a mixture of iron and clay, the iron representing elements from the old Roman Empire and the clay representing less, uh, less substantive elements that will be brought into it when it revives in the end time. So the end time empire is pictured as not as strong as the iron, taking elements out of the old Roman empire, but adding new elements in. And then the ten toes represent ten powers, ten nations, ten kings that will arise during the tribulation period. That represents that future kingdom of the Antichrist. Each of these images that we see builds upon uh, former re- revelation in Daniel. So at the first image, we just get the ten kings and a future empire coming out of the Roman Empire. We learn in Daniel 7 that the Antichrist will rise to power following a confederation of ten nations. We see this image of a powerful beast in Daniel chapter 7 the kingdoms are represented by beasts indicating that they're a rapacious devouring uh, element they will be hostile to God and devour mankind and that this final uh, monster this this horrible beast that is beyond description has ten horns the ten horns are comparable to the ten toes And then there's another horn that rises up from within them, the text will say, and that is the rise of the Antichrist to take control of that uh, confederation. So we see the four four beasts that come up from the sea in Daniel representing the same flow of history that was presented by the statue in Daniel 2, so that the... Lion represents Babylon. The bear represents the Media Persian Empire. It's a lopsided bear indicating that the Persians have more power than the Medes. And then the third empire is the Greek Empire, which after the death of Alexander the Great splits into four. Lysimachus has control over Greece. Then you have the Ptolemies get Egypt, North Africa, Palestine area, uh, Seleucus gets the area of, uh, Babylon and, um, these are the most, the key, uh, kings that are there. And then there's Cassiodorus who gets part of Thrace. And then you have the fourth beast that arises and this comes out and has elements that come from all of the preceding kingdoms. And this horrible beast is the, uh, Roman Empire and then also the future revived roman empire daniel 7:19 daniel says i wish to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the others exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and nails of bronze the teeth of iron takes us back to the iron elements of the roman empire in daniel 2 it devoured, it broke in pieces, it trampled the residue with its feet and the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up, see the other horn is, is the Antichrist, the other horn which came up before which three fell. So the Antichrist will conquer three of these ten kingdoms because they initially don't want to go along with his, with his plan. And I believe these three are Syria, Egypt, and possibly Libya. The ten horns that were on its head, the other horn came up, which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. Now those three I mentioned are all in the Middle East, but remember they were all part of the original Roman Empire. It wasn't just a Western European-based empire. Uh, Daniel 7.23, thus he said, The fourth beast, shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth. This It will have, to some degree, a global power base during the tribulation period. And it shall devour the whole earth, and as we'll see in Revelation 13, the Antichrist is able to force everybody on the planet to take a mark and that no one can buy or sell without this mark. Then the next passage we looked at that gives us a clue as to the Antichrist is Daniel 9.26. After the 62 weeks, which indicates a break, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That took place in 70 A.D. point I'm making here is that within the narrative, you don't automatically see that there is a time break between the 69th week, 62 plus 7, and the 70th week, but it's there. It was, you see these breaks in other places in Daniel. And now we come to the passage we're focusing on this morning, and this is in Daniel chapter 11, beginning in Daniel 11 verse 36. Daniel 11 is again one of the most remarkable prophecies in all of the Bible. Daniel wrote, uh, he lived during the period from about, we're not sure when he was born, but he was taken captive in the first deportation by Nebuchadnezzar in 605. He dies somewhere around 535, 536, 537. We don't know exactly when he died, but we do know that the end of the book of Daniel is about the time that the Jews are first allowed by Cyrus to go back to the land. So his his lifespan is clearly within the sixth century before Christ, and yet he prophesies in detail what is going to happen in the next two, three, four centuries between the, is, the Jews return to the land and the coming of the messiah uh, he couldn 't have made this up this is one of those great evidences we have that the Bible is what it claims to be, that is, the revealed Word of God. It's not history written uh, subsequently. There are those, of course, who uh, reject the Bible as God's Word and try to come up with some explanation. It just doesn't work. The evidence of Daniel's having been written very early is just too strong, and you can't just make it up because you don't like the fact that God actually can uh, foretell the future, and it comes to pass. So we get into Daniel uh, chapter 11, and the first part of the of the chapter, from verses 1 to 35, give us a remarkable outline of what will take place in Israel's future. In the in verses 2 through 4, there's a description very brief description of the future rise of the Persian Empire and their defeat and replacement by the Greek Empire, which will take place under Alexander the Great, and then the fact that this empire would be broken up, and that is exactly what happened when uh, Alexander died. Four of his generals split the empire, and the two that are significant for this study are Ptolemy, who took Egypt, and Seleucus, who took uh, the Babylonian area, and Syria. And they battled between them for more territory. And what piece of property lay between Syria and Egypt? Hmm. Israel. And so that, for, for the first part of the period, it's under the domination of the Ptolemies. And the Ptolemies were not Egyptian. They were the descendants of Ptolemy, who was a Greek general. But they were, so these Greeks ruled over Egypt. And the last of the Ptolemaic line was Cleopatra. Cleopatra was, uh, was Greek, not Egyptian. She was not African. Back in previous centuries, there have been those who have tried to claim that she was African. But she's, she's, she's not. She is pure Greek. Her whole family's Greek. And the Ptolemies fought with the Seleucids all through this period. And this is described further in verses 5 through 20. As the descendants of Ptolemy become rather uh, uh, lazy in maintaining their kingdom, the Seleucids rise in power and eventually take the area of Palestine away from the hegemony of the Egyptians in the context, very important to define these terms, in the context, Egypt is defined as the king of the south, and Syria is defined as the king of the north. Okay, keep that in mind. The king of the north is not Russia. king of the north is Syria in context. This section ends, when you get down to about verses 19 to 20, it ends with a focus on Antiochus the Great, Antiochus the Third, called the Great, defeated Egypt and gained control of Palestine called the beautiful land. This is the land of Israel. Incidentally, the term Palestine, if you don't know this, the term Palestine does not have to do with the Philistines. It's not a term that is etymologically related to Philistines. It was a term that the Greeks applied to this area based on a little pun because the Greeks, Greeks love puns and the greek word for a wrestler was palao with a p not a ph philistines had a soft p a ph and so they called it the land of the wrestler and the wrestler of course was jacob given the name israel because of a wrestling match he had with the angel of the lord at a place called peniel and so they thought they were being quite uh humorous and punny by putting together a name that sounded like Philistines, but actually was a reference to Jacob the wrestler, and that 's where that term comes from. The myth that you run into today uh, from the uh, from the Palestinians is that the name Palestine really goes back to the ancient philistines they 're uh, descendants of the ancient Philistines, so they have a right to the land, and israel doesn 't but uh, they just haven't done their homework, and I don't think they care to. So that section ends with the uh, reign of Antiochus III taking control of, of uh, Israel, the beautiful land. And in verses 21 to 35, we get a picture of the despicable king who is Antiochus the IV Epiphanes. And Antiochus stood as a type of the antichrist in the ancient world it is antiochus epiphanes they call, they they nobody liked him he was ridiculed by many people and so they um, they made a little pun on his name and they called him epimenes instead of epiphanes epimenes means the madman uh, he went into the holy of holies in the temple in jerusalem and set up a, 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 he sacrificed a pig on the altar and set himself up as god as a picture foreshadowing the abomination of desolation, which is what the Antichrist will do. So Antiochus is pictured here in overtones and terms that are uh, indicative of the Antichrist because he's he's that type of the Antichrist. He's the most wicked, vile, anti-Semitic king in the ancient world. And so his career, though, the description of his career ends in Daniel 11, 35. And a shift occurs between Daniel 1135 and Daniel 1136. Up through Daniel 1135, we have history. Beginning in Daniel 1136, we have prophecy. And the way to understand this is like mountain peaks. You had a prophet in the Old Testament who is just looking across a mountain range. If you've ever gone up to the Rockies or any other mountain range, you know that as you are off at a distance, you see two or three peaks that look as if they're very close together, but as you get closer and closer, you realize that there's an enormous valley that lies between them and the one in the front just appear to be close to the one in the back, but they're separated by uh, maybe uh, 50 or 100 miles. So the prophets would look forward in history and just see certain key events. And they would often prophesy these events, such as just the birth of Jesus at Bethlehem, the uh, work of Christ on the cross. But the church age is down in a the valley. They didn't see anything about the church age. And then they saw the appearance of Christ in his uh, coming at the second coming, and they often didn't distinguish between the first coming and the second coming, and in between you have prophecies related to the Antichrist as well as the kingdom and eventually judgment on the earth. So it's helpful to realize as we look at these prophecies that the reason you skip from 35 to 36 and you're skipping the entire uh, intertestamental period, you're skipping the entire church age and jumping ahead to the Antichrist is because the prophets were not given revelation in between, about uh, the church age. And part of the reason for this is because during the church age, because of the restraining work of the Holy Spirit, which we've studied, it's called the restrainer in 2 Thess 2, the kingdom of man that's represented by uh, all of these kingdoms is being restrained, the evil is being restrained due to the presence of the Holy Spirit and dur- dur- because of the presence of the of Christians and because of their impact as salt and light in history. Now when we come to Daniel 1136, there is this shift that occurs to a future king. And this is indicated by a number of things in the, in the text. First of all, we see that there's a break between Daniel 1135 and 36, and this is typical of breaks that occur in other prophetic passages. Uh, Daniel 2.40 breaks before Daniel 2.41. Uh, Daniel 7.23 shows a break in time before Daniel 7.24. As I pointed out earlier, Daniel 26 sees a break between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week. So these kinds of things are not unusual in Scripture. Another thing that shows that a break has occurred and that the king mentioned in verse 36 is not the king of verse 35 is that none of the things that are described as relating to this king in verses 36 down through the end of the chapter have occurred. They did not occur in the life of Antiochus Epiphanes, but everything from 20 up to uh, 34 did occur precisely as revealed in Scripture, and all of a sudden there's a shift to this king, and now what's described to this king in terms of his character isn't the same as uh, Antiochus in terms of his, uh, the things that he does it is not fulfilled historically in Antiochus. So the historical um, events don't match this, so it has to be future. Then uh, another thing we see just contextually is the story of Antiochus' persecution of the Jews ended by verse 35. There's nothing more to say, so this is going to another another individual. And then this per- person that uh, we start focusing on in verse 36 is referred to only as the king, whereas uh, the Antiochian line, the Seleucid line, had been designated the kings of the north. And in fact, when we get down to verse 40, we'll see that this new king is distinguished from the king of the north. So that indicates that he is not in the line of the Seleucids. And then when we come to chapter 12, verse 1, Michael will stand up in the future and say, um, uh, "...the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation." A time of trouble since there never was since there was a nation. This mirrors what Jesus says about the tribulation period in Matthew twenty four twenty one, that it's a time of unprecedented warfare, a time of unprecedented horror. Uh, never ever in history did these kinds of things happen. So uh, Jesus himself interprets the material in Daniel eleven thirty six and following as future even in his time. So these events have not taken place yet. So this first king is described as the king who will do as he pleases. This fits with other passages that we find on the Antichrist. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 2.7, it's the mystery of lawlessness that's already at work, and he is known as the lawless one. In Daniel 7.25, describing the little horn, That is the Antichrist, we read, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. The point is that the Antichrist sets himself up as his own authority, and he's going to be the ultimate reference point for law. And he will attempt to change uh, traditional law, and he will set himself up as the tyrant, who rules over history, and he will not tolerate any other system or anyone else and will recognize no higher law or higher authority than himself. This is because he is indwelt and empowered by Satan, and this is Satan's last attempt, last great attempt in history to be able to establish his kingdom on earth and show that he can rule the planet is God. So he is the one who empowers the Antichrist. So the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every God. And I think this is a critical verse because the time when he truly does exalt himself over every other God is when he sets himself up to be worshiped as God, sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, in the, uh, in, in the uh, tribulation temple, and he wants to be worshipped as God. I think the time period of these events is near the end of that first half of the tribulation period leading up to his self-exaltation and overlapping the midpoint of the tribulation. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, he will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. This is a term referring to the God of Israel. He is called the God of gods because he is the uh, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will speak and he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. And in this particular verse, there is the emphasis on the fact that God, as the sovereign God of the universe, is going to allow him to prosper and to establish his kingdom, only to bring it to its final and ultimate judgment. Uh, This phrase here, that he will speak monstrous things, is really a mistranslation. It is the uh, Hebrew word niflot, and Niflaot refers to miracles. So it's not that he is speaking monstrous things, but he is speaking miracles and causing uh signs and wonders. This of course is attested in other passages of Scripture. For example, in Second Thessalonians uh, two nine. We read that that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So what is it that frees us from being deceived from anything? It is a knowledge of the truth, and that doesn't mean it's not helpful to understand some of the characteristics of various false systems. But ultimately, the thing that protects us is because we know the truth. We understand the Scripture. And when you study the Scripture and know the Scripture and truly understand what its implications are, that protects you. But it's not always enough just to know what you believe and why you believe it. Because in any area of life, in order to uh, be fully comfortable and settled in your convictions, you also have to know why you don't believe other things. Not just why you believe the Scriptures, but why you don't believe uh, other things, especially things that come very close to imitating the Scriptures. So those who have a love for the truth, are those who are motivated to know the Word. It's not just showing up at Bible class once a week or showing up at church once a week. people who desire, have a hunger to know the Word. One of the most convicting chapters of Scripture is in Nehemiah chapter 8. In the 8th chapter of Nehemiah, the Jews have been back in the land for some 80 to 90 years, and they really haven't done a whole lot. Nehemiah finally was sent back by Artaxerxes to rebuild, to finish the rebuilding of the city, building the walls and establishing them. And while they had been back, the initial return under Zerubbabel, later returns under Ezra, the people had become spiritually complacent. And spiritual complacency always opens the door to spiritual Deception, because people just give lip service to the truth. They just give formal acknowledgement to Bible study. You can go to hundreds of thousands of churches around the country, and they will have Bible study on Wednesday night. But the people who go to that and what they think of as Bible study, if they were to come here on a Tuesday, Thursday night, or even on Sunday morning, would be blown away. They say, "Oh, what you're doing belongs in seminary somewhere." Eh, just—I just want to study the Bible. I don't want to learn all this stuff. I don't want to learn how to think. They don't actually say that, but that's—that's that's what's actually going on in—in in the vast majority of of churches today. And the people you get out there and talk to people about the Bible, and they're just unbelievably ignorant of the Bible. They've never read the Bible through from cover to cover. Uh, they, they're never exposed to anything but motivational, feel-good type of messages, and so they never really have a love for the truth. But in Nehemiah chapter 8, as the Jews have rebuilt the walls, they come together and they have this assemblage in the, up on the Temple Mount, as they are going to dedicate the walls and Ezra begins to read to them from the law and the crowd is estimated between 30 and 50,000. Can you imagine that? You've got 30 to 50,000 people. Those of you who have been to Israel and been up on the Temple Mount, just, it would just be a sea of people. And of course, no one person could teach or read the scripture so that everybody uh, could hear it's possible under certain conditions. George Whitfield certainly uh, was able to speak to crowds in excess of 15,000. That's documented in history without uh, electrical enhancements. But at that time, they didn't have that. Ezra would read from the law, and then there were priests that were scattered throughout the crowd, who would explain what he had just read. So he would read a paragraph or a short passage, and then he would stop, and then these priests who are scattered throughout the crowd would then give instruction based on what he had read. And they began at sunup, and they went until about 2 in the afternoon, and they stood the whole time. I've often wanted to do an experiment on Sunday morning and say, okay, everybody stand up. And I'm going to read the Torah this morning. We'll give Ike a break, and I'll read from Genesis through Deuteronomy. And that will be our scripture reading this morning, and then we'll sit down. How many people would complain, say, well, okay, it's, we've been here three hours now. I've got to go to lunch. I've got to, uh, I've, I've got, you know, it's Mother's Day. You know, that's more important. I've got people coming from out of town. Well, the response of those people was that they wept and they fell on their face. Of course, they're more demonstrative than we are, and they, but they were under conviction. As they heard the word of God tell them how they should think and what they should do, they realized how disobedient they'd been to God, and it struck to the core of their being. That's what positive volition looks like. Okay, just just, that's just your little point of application this morning, something to go home and think about this week, that that's what positive volition looks like. We have a tendency to sort of dilute real hunger for God's Word to listening to a tape once a week or going to Bible class a couple of times a week and not this sort of intensity. And this isn't the only time that kind of thing happened in the Old Testament. Positive volition isn't just, well, I'm interested in God's word. Positive volition is recognizing that learning the word of God and studying the word of God isn't just something I do, it is my life. And that's what the love of truth is. And so when we look at a passage like the one we have seen here, that those who are deceived are those who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. It it goes beyond simply accepting Christ as Savior, because this is talking about tribulation period, tribulation saints. It's not talking about justification salvation there. It's talking about deliverance from within the period of the tribulation. Well, we'll come back next time and continue our study in Daniel chapter 11, lessons from the uh, Antichrist from the willful king and focus on more from the Word of God. But remember, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. There is no verse that is not profitable for you. No doctrine that isn't profitable. For God has revealed it all for our spiritual life and our spiritual health and our spiritual sustenance, and we need to have a love of the truth that surpasses our love for everything else in life with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning and to reflect upon uh, how you have protected Israel in the past and how you have provided revelation to inform us as to the destiny of human history help us to understand that throughout history there have been the rise of despots and tyrants, all of whom to some degree represent elements and aspects of this future horrific tyrant and dictator we call the Antichrist. And since Satan is as unaware of when the rapture will occur as we are, in every generation he has his man waiting in the wings, to move into position. And so we as believers need to have discernment when we look out around us and what is happening in history, recognizing the, the trends, recognizing the characteristics that mirror that of the Antichrist, that we might be sensitive, might apply doctrine, and might function as salt and light in history. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to recognize that there is a future accountability. And the only way to be saved, to be justified, to have eternal life, is to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Scripture says it's very simple. It's not based on who you are, what you do. It's not based on your morality, your character, your failures or successes. It's based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did at the cross. And by trusting in him and him alone, you have eternal life. This is your opportunity to trust in him. The instant you do, you're given new life, you receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, you're declared justified, and this new life in Christ can never be lost. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we've learned this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing hymn.